All right, welcome to the podcast. Ollie here, wherever you are in the world right now, however you're listening, whatever you're doing right at this very second. Uh, it's the final episode in season one. I hope that's not going to be the end of the podcast, just the beginning. Uh, but this is probably my favourite episode coming up. And I really think this is the episode for everyone, whether you've got digestive distress or you're just looking to optimise your gut. Today's a good one. All right, then, let's do the podcast. Welcome to the Gutology podcast. Ollie and Julia here as we settle into our final episode of season one. Uh, we've saved the best till last because today is all about the diet. What should you be eating? Why should you be eating it? And what impact can that have on your long term health? And we've saved this one till last because there was so much to get through about what your gut does, how it works, the impact that it has on your health, that it felt like if we approach the diet in the final episode, that will give you something to 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 go on with and something to incorporate into your diet. Um, I just want to thank everyone that has uh, reached out to us on the on the on the website at gutology.co.uk that have messaged us on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, so many of you have been rating and reviewing the podcast, saying. Um, how much it has already opened your mind to gut health. I knew originally this would be fascinating for people that were suffering. What has surprised me the most is that people that their gut seems in working order and seems okay have listened to it and been quite excited about stuff they can do to optimise their gut. And I think that's quite exciting, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's great. It's really good. Um, so um, if you uh, want to get in touch with us, just go to gutology.co.uk. We've got loads of extra videos. We've also got the YouTube clinics up now. So we go into more in depth in, uh, about things like eczema. We've got things about Crohn's up on there. We've got diabetes. They're basically longer standalone clinics that go into more detail about certain uh, conditions. And that's Julia and I as well on that. If you want to get involved, just go to YouTube and type in gutology all right then this week we are talking about the diet and where do we begin well i think we've got a few things to get through first before we talk about what is the right diet or if there even is a right diet but let's go through some particular categories when we start we were just talking off air julia that throughout this podcast we've been saying to people the overall message is if you want to really improve your gut health, if you are suffering, the key is to get tested. So find a nutritionist that you know works in functional medicine and understands these complex tests and then get one of these tests done. Those results will tell you exactly what's going on inside your microbiome. They will, the nutritionist will then be able to work out a plan for you as an individual. And then on top of that, we'll be able to take from that potentially what is a diet that's suitable to you. Yeah, yeah. The tests just shortcut the whole process. So um, it, it just, it makes for, we need to understand the individuality of that person and getting the test done just shortcuts a lot of trial and error approaches with diet because it's such an individual thing. 
and what what diet is suitable for um, you might not work at all for somebody else. So it's quite difficult to ascertain exactly what you should be eating. There's some general rules and things that we'll go through today that will just generally benefit everybody. But get into the nitty gritty of actually what you should be eating going forward to remain healthy. Tests, um, testing of the store to assess the whole GI environment can tell you. But also the interesting thing is that because you're, the way you react to food and the way you respond to foods and the chemicals that you get in food is largely down to your gut bacteria. And as you change your diet, you change your gut bacteria. So then you become more... Um, more able to digest other foods and then you change your diet again. So it's one of the things that even in that same person, the individuality of the foods that you need to eat changes with time anyway, as you're changing your gut microbes. And I certainly noticed that like there's foods that I just couldn't handle. And then I'd, once we went through and uh, I sort of recovered, I then went back to certain foods. There was loads of foods that I could eat. And then there were still certain foods that just weren't like, I tell you what was what, like chickpeas. I just couldn't yeah. seem to get on. Yeah. But over time, the more and more I ate them, the more my body became, became sort of able to sort of tolerate them. And that's fascinating to know that it's because that bacteria is developing that is able to digest it in the first place. Yeah, the bacteria is so underrated what the bacteria do. They do so many different things. And I think we're at the tip of the iceberg in really understanding the full extent of what the bacteria do. But they contain digestive enzymes and ways to break down the food in which we actually can't do on our own. So if you're changing the bacterial diversity you've got in your gut, then you are now able to open up a whole new world of foods that you wouldn't previously have been able to digest. Let's get into uh, certain topics around diet. And I think the, a good place to start is with carbs. Carbs, we have a funny relationship with. For some people, it's all about carb loading. For some people, it's restrictive carbs. Firstly, explain, let's explain what carbohydrates are. So um, carbohydrates are in foods like like breads, pastas, cereals, grains, vegetables are carbohydrates. There's lots of different types of them. And we get things like complex carbohydrates, which are slightly better for our blood sugars. And we get simple carbohydrates, which break down very quickly. And then that can be responsible for affecting like spikes in your blood sugar and things like that. So there's lots of different carbohydrates out there, but we've got a real love-hate relationship with them. So there's loads of diets out there, like really popular at the moment is keto dieting and people are self-prescribing the keto diet um but for those that don't know what the keto diet is it's basically removing all carbohydrates so you're mostly eating high fat meat plants that yeah sort of stuff. and high proteins as well so you know in under some circumstances and i would really largely say under supervision as well that can be really really powerful way of treating certain disease certainly some cancers respond to it not all um sometimes autoimmunity respond to it really well but others don't so it really needs to be that individualized approach with support from somebody that knows what they're doing but um, because these diets have become more popular just the general awareness of these diets is huge at the moment you know probably due to instagram and Facebook and things like that, people think, okay, so there's always somebody that says keto changed my life. So then the people are just testing it out to see. So the danger is that carbs are neither bad nor good. They are both. They are everything. You know, they're both of those things. So there's nothing wrong with eating carbohydrates in your diet. And actually, um, your body requires carbohydrates for energy. So if you don't have any carbohydrates in your diet, one of the first things that can happen is fatigue. Um, but not in every case. Because some bodies can adapt to burning fat for energy. Yes. But one of the byproducts of the keto diet, I think what's important to say 
is that you're right. You go onto Reddit at the moment and there'll be a hundred different articles about people saying uh, the keto diet. I, I, I removed all of my allergies and I, 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 my diabetes went away and I suddenly have all of this energy. I think that the, the, the risk there is actually what's happening is if they have a bad if they have a bad microbiome that's causing them a lot of issues and they suddenly strip out all of those vegetables uh, or all of those uh, high carbohydrates that give them a hard time and they suddenly feel better they go well this is this has cured me mm. but actually they're suddenly running a really light, low diversity microbiome mm. that's just not being inflamed by what's going on that's not actually recovering them it's not i think you're right like that cha- that initial change in symptom can be such a relief and you think right i'm better and then you tell all your friends and family, like this diet has changed my life. You know, it's really, really helped me. But actually, like you say, all it's done is given them respite from whatever symptoms were occurring in the first place, but it's not fixed anything. Which is not dissimilar to our elimination diet. We, yeah. we have this six week yeah. plan on online. And the whole point of that to start with is take the stress off yeah. the digestive system. And that is removing a lot of inflammatory foods. But the key with the sort of gutology plan is once you have removed that, you then go in and do the roadworks. Yeah. So that you can have the heavy traffic again. Yeah. yeah. And and you will have that sort of diverse microbiome. Exactly. The other thing with carbs, though, is uh, that people really forget is that um, carbohydrates um, provide the right sort of, well, they provide fibre. This is where you, you get fibre from carbohydrates. So if you're completely excluding the food group or really minimising it then you can lack um, in the fibre benefits. So protection against colon cancer is largely dependent on carbohydrate intake. So complete withdrawal of that for a different purpose would increase the risk of developing colon cancer. So there's a, you know people that are proponents of high meat, high fat, high protein diets and very, very low carbs may then be putting themselves at risk of something that they're not aware of. So, so one of the big side effects of having a, the ketogenic diet is a lot of people get constipation with it. And that, yeah. is, that is because of the reduction in fibre. Yes, it is. Yeah. And then so you can you can do ketogenic diets in a healthier way. But like I say, you need to do it under supervision because you need to know all the tricks in order to get to get past that and minimise the risks of doing it because it can be an outstanding dietary protocol for somebody who's got a condition. So for people to get the right amount of carbs in their diet, I suppose it's important to know what carbs you should be eating because there's a, you know, carbs are yes, it's white bread, but also it's sweet potato. So yeah. where are the where is the best source to get your carbohydrates from? So not the same source is the easy answer. So like just alternating all the different things that you're eating. So um, like with grains, let's just take grains. So a lot of people are quite wheat heavy in their diet, toast for breakfast or wheat bix say, and then lunch would be a sandwich and then dinner might be a big bowl of pasta. So it's wheat for breakfast, wheat for lunch, wheat for dinner. So um, there's there, there are there are issues with wheat, um, but there's also a lot of people that can eat wheat quite happily, particularly like the sourdough forms and the more fermented forms of um, of wheat are a lot better digested. But if you're eating anything that is several times a day repeatedly, then that is not a good idea. So it's rotating the grains that you're choosing to use. So if you do have a bit of wheat in the diet for breakfast, or maybe have like a quinoa salad for lunch. And then in the evening, you might have some rice, uh, brown rice with, uh, you know, vegetables and some chicken, say, you know, there's so many different options that you can have but I think it's just not the the real message is not to just eat the same thing all over again and I think in this country the western diet is very very heavy on wheat and breads so the other things to watch out for like pastries and things like pastries cakes biscuits all of those sort of sweet snacks 
are all wheat based, they're all flour based products. So if you're so quite often a typical diet would be um, Weetabix or toast for breakfast and Elevens is cake made from wheat flour, lunch a sandwich, in the afternoon a couple of biscuits and then pasta in the evening. So that's five portions yeah. of wheat a day. So it's, uh, yeah, it's trying not to rely solely on one particular grain. And I think if you think of your microbiome like a rainbow and you think that all the colour of all of those foods is... I, I think a simple way to understand this, at least for me, is... Think of the diversity of your gut like a rainbow. White carbs are the white. Yeah. And if you predominantly are eating all white, yeah. your rainbow suddenly looks very bland. Yeah. Whereas if you literally pick the colours of the rainbow, we're going to get more of this sort of later on, that naturally you will have a more colourful, therefore a higher diversity diet. Yeah. Um, when, when we were talking about um, grains there, let's just quickly go into... Um, sourdough and fermented. Why are they? Mm. Di- why are they digested better in the diet, and why should you choose that over, say, your standard white bread? So they, the way it actually breaks down the gluten protein, it actually helps to make it more digestible. It's almost it consider it like a pre-digested form. So it just takes a lot of pressure off your gut in order to do that, um, because gluten fragments can actually be quite hard to break down. And that's because of the long fermentation in the yeah. way they make the bread. Yeah, which is the way bread would be would have been traditionally made, but now those processes are completely you know taken over by industrial processes, and it's just it, it's a completely different. Type type of type of grain now that we eat so there's lots of discussion about like modern wheat practices and it's the grain there might have been things that have changed in the way that the grain is farmed but it's largely due to how it's processed and how it's processed into flour and then how that flour is used later so like stone milled flour has got a different it's easier to digest than industrial milled flour there's there's lots of kind of subtle differences but actually make a difference on how your gut can digest it and can break it down and whether it becomes inflammatory and causes leaky gut or whether it doesn't so it's only a short hop from carbohydrates to sugar because technically yeah yeah carbohydrates are sugar and yeah. that's not something that everyone understands yeah no so sugars so refined sugars in the diet are something that really they actually kill off beneficial bacteria so we don't want a lot of refined sugar so we don't want everyone to be a, a complete saint in their diet it's fine to have a treat every now and again but what's happened in in the western world is that the treats have become the staples and that's really largely where we've gone wrong so having the odd you know the odd cake is fine but now it's a it's a common almost daily occurrence, if not two or three times a week. And our levels of refined sugar per day are far too high on the whole. So it's killing the beneficial microbes. And it's also allowing the undesirable stuff to grow in the microbiome. So yeast and fungus will overgrow in the presence of sugars. So sugars also goes as far as alcohol as well. So, you know, again, it's not to say don't drink and there's certain benefits of having a little bit of alcohol, but then when you have lots of alcohol or you don't have, you you have drink a little of alcohol every single day without taking break days, again, that can really disrupt the microbiome as well. And it's largely due to the sugar content as well as the alcohol bit as well. So when you think about your diet and you think about your digestive system think about it just like a balancing scale yeah and like whatever you're doing there needs to be an equal balance on the other side so if you do like a few glasses of wine a week we'll make sure you're getting loads of colorful foods you're getting loads of high fiber in there and you're balancing it all out it's as soon as one thing starts to get top heavy yeah you will start to you will start to have problems with it and when you get I, i think there are some really simple tips as well within alcohol you know the 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 
one thing that I don't think we are completely aware of is how high the sugar content is in mm. alcohol. You know, I see it all the time with, you know, people I work with in the office and people are on these uh, slim fast diets and they're trying to lose weight really, really rapidly and they're doing the shakes or the salads and all that sort of stuff. But in the evening, they're having a glass of wine, not even computing that it could be five times the amount of calories that they had in their lunch. Yeah. And I think that is a common sort of misconception. Um, you know, things like beers are high carb, yeah. relatively high sugar. Yeah. You know, you even get into the Alcopops, super high sugar, mm. but you get into stuff like even the wines, you mm. know, there was a real range. If you, uh, One great tip is to go all the way across to dry white wines mm -hmm. and the difference between the sugar content in something yeah. like a champagne, a Prosecco or a very dry white mm. versus a big, thick, heavy Malbec, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. Or, a, or a sweet Riesling at yeah. the other end of the spectrum. But then the, you've got to look at colour again, like the the rich red wine actually is quite good. A little got, bit of that uh, is quite good. The polyphenols in it. Yeah, yeah. the proanthocyanidins. Yeah, that's the one you were looking for, isn't that's it? it? That's it. <laughs> um, and, but, but that's interesting because, you know, you if you're going to go through this, if, for those that are, are thinking about going on the six-week plan because you want to you improve and you're going to take some stuff out of your diet, it does get miserable for a while or just those of you looking to sort of optimize it's it's that it's that it's that night and day it's that it's that light and shade that if you can find that like with anything it's like yeah going to the gym and working out is painful but then it feels so good when your body's feeling good and it's the same thing with food if you can start treating like you're saying sweets and desserts as treats mm. and boundary them for what they are yeah fill your diet with colorful food which can taste great yeah and then also when you have that glass of red wine on a friday that you've not had between monday and thursday it will taste so much better yeah it's more special to do it like that but i think it's slipping into habits and i think with things like when you get really stressed at work or something nothing better than a glass of wine at the end of the evening and but i think the way the world goes it just normalizes all these things and so before you realize it there's a lot of chronic alcoholism amongst people that have no idea they fit into that category and that's a bit concerning um i think dairy's an important one to cover on this because you know some people will just rule out the white goods you yeah know, you, you yeah. hear some leading experts some nutritionists to say that uh you know white flour white dairy yeah all of those things are, are really really bad for you so so where yeah. do you sit on dairy yeah it depends on the person so it depends like if they i would um I would ask somebody to avoid dairy foods if they had any kind of hormonal problems because it just seems to be a direct implication there. And that's really because for the cow or the goat to actually produce the milk, they have got the hormones in their system to do that, just like we would as humans. So um, it can contribute significantly to hormone imbalances. So that would be a, a group of people where I would definitely err on the side of caution, if not complete avoidance of dairy. But then on the other hand, you get, you know, fermented forms of dairy like kefir, just your basic yogurt, but live yogurt that's not got sugar added to it and flavorings and stuff. That can be really, really beneficial as part of a, a whole food diet. So there's some circumstances when dairy can be really good. Um, I, I guess I think a lot of it is not such a good idea. Um, 
But if it is the more fermented forms like the yogurt and the kefir, I think that's absolutely fine to have on a daily basis if you seem to tolerate it okay. Um, I think what I would always recommend when people, when my clients get to a state where they're really, really healthy and the problems have cleared up and they feel better, they feel fine again, we've got to work out where, where they need to go next with their diet. For some of those, they say, I don't want to have dairy again because of what it's done to me in the past. And they've discovered that through doing things like elimination diets and when they have reintroduced it, they've got symptoms. It might be headaches, it might be skin rash or something like that, but they've decided for themselves it's not the right way forward. Other people would say to me at the point where they get better, you know, I've really missed dairy, so can we try reintroducing it? And at that point, I say, well, yeah, let's do it. You know, a bit of cheese, a bit of um, yogurt in your diet, just on, you know, not every day to begin with, and let's see how you feel. And some people love that, and it's a really enjoyable part of their diet. So, again, it just comes down to individuality, really. When you get on to um, uh, the sort of the other main section of the diet, which is meat, um, you know, this is going to uh, divide a lot of people because obviously uh, veganism and ve- vegetarianism is 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 becoming more prevalent than ever mm. before. And for some people, they feel like they they are better on those sorts of diets. Yeah. Um, but firstly, let's just get into people that do have a, a meat diet. Mm. Um, what are the benefits of meat mm. and what sort of meat should you be eating? So uh, we've eaten, as humans, we've eaten meat for a long, long time. So um, going, thinking of things like the paleo diet, you know, that's um, um, the sort of more hunter-gatherer approach. Meat has always been available to us. So this is something that is like long historically been part of our diets. So people that choose to eliminate it on ethical reasons would just would just park that one for now because we're really just discussing the nutritional content and things like that. So it's quite aside from ethical differences. Issues with meat can be digestibility. So it can be very hard to break down meat fibres, particularly if you've got poor stomach acids. So that's the first thing to sort out. Um, red meat is associated with an increase in risk of certain cancers. Not all cancers, though. On the um, and also there's actually something in red meat called carnitine. It's an amino acid. So carnitine can be really helpful in some ways in your body because it helps you to burn fat if you can digest the meat well and break it down and absorb the carnitine. But that very same nutrient actually can produce a compound in the gut that contributes to buildup of plaques in the arteries. So it can actually accelerate um, atherosclerosis, which is a contributor to heart disease and cardiovascular conditions. So it's the same nutrient as something really beneficial, which helps your energy and burn fats. And also it does something that's possibly detrimental. And again, that's the way that you would deal with that component of red meat is largely down to what your gut bacteria consists of. So again, we don't really know until we've tested. Um, on the plus side, though, there's things, nutrients like B12, meat, red meat particularly is a really good source of B12 and iron. So those things are amazing. And to get a plant source of iron is never as well absorbed. So things like spinach and green leafies, they'll produce some iron, but you don't absorb it as well as you ever would from the red meat. So it's real advantages like that as well. And it's an amazing protein source too. So, so I suppose like, you know, one of the big things uh, to sort of take on board is uh, where where are you buying your meat from? You know, we know that there are clinical studies out there to say that if you're if you're certainly processed meat is out the window, yeah. you can avoid processed meat. But also, it's like if you and it is expensive, but 
organic meat naturally has less traces of antibiotics in it yeah. than than mainstream meat because that is something when you've got a lot of animals in a in a small area yeah. it's very easy to transmit disease and they can only really keep a handle on that by yeah. putting a lot of antibiotics into those animals yeah so you know certainly the way that i approach uh, my diet is i i spend more money on meat uh, because you know where that is sourced from, and that mm. kind of creates an attitude of being slightly more frugal with the the amount of meat that you're eating, but the quality. And it is amazing. Like if you buy a if you buy a, a chicken breast that is organic, and you buy one from the supermarket, and you put them both in the pan, yeah. one pan next to the other, yeah. the supermarket chicken will be. Uh, a centimeter deep in water yeah. by the time it's cooked, yeah. and the and it will shrink, yeah. and the the organic meat will stay almost like a steak, yeah. and 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 it's incredible the difference between the quality of that meat, yeah. which means there must be more protein in it, yeah, yeah. There's differences in like omega three content, and there's loads of differences if you've got good organically reared and you're not having any growth hormones, particularly chicken. That's a you know they give growth hormones to chickens to make them grow faster so that they can you can get the meat and it's all a more effective process you don't want growth hormones in your chicken um but another word on that is if you think back to traditionally so i'm thinking like my grandmother's time is you would have a roast on a sunday and then the leftovers from that would be would be would last the week and then that would be your meat for the week whereas we're buying packets of meat portions and a lot of people are having meat every single night for dinner um, and then it builds up. So it's poor quality and high quantity. Whereas what you're saying, and I, I am exactly the same, is high quality. Yes, it's more expensive significantly, but good grass fed beef or organic free range chicken. Um, and again, completely aside from the welfare ethical reasons, nutritionally, it's far, far healthier for you. And it doesn't have any of those additives and chemicals in there. And the other thing to add is that for those of people that are, you know, their gut is in a poor state and, you know, all of the things that happen around, if you're not digesting your food properly, the knock on effects that we've talked about across this whole series. So things like you're not digesting your food properly, you're not absorbing the nutrients of it. It's, there's some really, really interesting stuff about um, organ meat. And I know that when you mention organ meat to somebody, they instantly sort of scrunch their face up slightly because this it feels like there's something dirty about organ meat. But the which um, is a bit odd though, isn't it? Because you know you're eating if you're eating an animal, you're eating an animal. Does it matter if you're eating a bit of the muscle or well, if you're and, eating a? And this is it. And and so the 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 organ meat, the amount, the density of the nutrients in organ meat. If you're thinking about things like liver. Mm. Um, is just incredible, especially if you're getting that from a yeah. well-sourced yeah. animal. Yeah. And if you are on, you know, if you're if you're fighting to, you're on one of these sort of recovery diets, or you've got an autoimmune condition or stuff like that. Yeah. Organ meat can be an amazing weapon. Yeah. To have in your arsenal. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Really, really good with organ meats, and I think there's different. You know. It's because they are not used as much in modern cooking as before. It's knowing what to do with them, you know, but there's loads of inspiration on the Internet of what to do with them and how to include these things in your diet in small amounts. But like, you know, liver can provide so much vitamin A. So through my pregnancy, I used to just once a month have a portion of liver to keep my vitamin A levels in a natural way. Um, and I know there's issues with too much vitamin A in preg pregnancy can cause problems. But, you know, I, I knew what I was doing in terms of getting that balance in through the diet. And that was my preferred way of doing it rather than, uh, you know, taking a supplement or something.
Um, so when we go from meat, the sort of, you know, the, the cap on that is, is like, yeah, if you're going to have red meat, make sure it's from a really, really good source yeah. and you, you're not having it too frequently. Like, what, are we saying like once a week is okay for really high quality red meat? I mean, high quality red meat once a week um, would be fine and check your stomach acid. So if you feel that on the day that you have red meat, you just get bloated and full and just feel a bit bit rubbish about it it's because you can't digest it so get the stomach acid right and then have your red meat maybe once a week there's articles about how to boost your stomach acid yeah uh, just head to gutology.co.uk um all right uh, before we get into this week's news um let's just talk about um vegetarianism um i i feel like when i have friends over uh, I'm that annoying person now when I have my friends over that are vegetarian. I say to every single person, are you supplementing? <laughs> and 99.9% of vegetarians go, what are you talking about? No, yeah. So yeah. firstly, let's just talk about the vegetarian diet. Yeah. Other than what we're going to talk about in a second, yeah. are there any reasons that you are against a vegetarian diet? Because we know all the benefits. You're getting higher yeah. fibre, you're getting yeah. eating yeah, more yeah. plants, high diversity. What would your concerns be away from B12 and iron? Um, so... It's it's depending if, if it's the good versus the bad vegetarian. So a bad vegetarian is the chips and cheese type vegetarian. High carb. So, yeah, exactly. But if they were using things like fermented tofu, which is called tempeh and beans and pulses, lentils, lots of different vegetables, lots of different colours, I would really support that. I think that's a great way of eating. Um, it's normally the protein intake is a concern. So if the vegetarian doesn't like pulses, they, they're going to struggle in my opinion. They're going to struggle if they're not making things like that because they're just filling up on like maybe high fat stuff like cheese and it's just not good for them. Um, so protein would be a concern for vegetarianism as well as the nutrients, B12 and so iron. What is the biggest risk to somebody that is on a vegetarian diet? I mean, if you have low protein intake, then, well, it, protein is needed for growth and repair. So as a child, growing difficulties, but you're more concerned with the repairing aspect as you're going through adulthood. So protein is the most important nutrient for repairing your body. So you could be susceptible to chronic problems because you're failing to repair things as well and also your liver depends largely on protein to detoxify so you'd end up getting a buildup of toxins because you wouldn't have the proteins to generate the right chemicals to start breaking down the toxins to excrete them from your body what supplement should every single vegetarian be taking um b12 and iron would be the top two so um b12 generally yeah. you're getting it from Red meat. Red meat, yeah. Um, and B12 is something that it's, it's an insidious deficiency yeah. in some ways because it doesn't have many symptoms often until it's too late. Well, you can't, you can store it in your liver. So, you know, if you were to eat, I don't know, a steak once, which obviously doesn't apply to vegetarians, but it's giving you the idea of quantity. If you were to eat a steak once every six months, you'd probably get enough B12 stored in your liver to last you. So it's quite rare that you then get a, you know, get a true deficiency. But if you're not eating any red meat at all, then it can build up. But with B12 deficiencies, there's they're actually hard to pick up as well. So you can get your B12 tested through a blood test from the doctor and it could be in normal levels. But the sort of functional testing that I do can show a slightly different parameter that can identify whether or not you're actually have your b12 
in a usable form. And that's really interesting. So that's why a deficiency might get missed for a long time until it was really, really severe. And a sym- and the symptoms of long-term B12 deficiency can be? So mostly to do with the nervous system. So you can get things like numbness and tingling. Some people can get some visual problems. Um, it, it presents in different ways, but mostly it's, a, it's an important nutrient to nourish the nerves of the, of the nervous system. So anything neurological, really. Okay, let's get oh, so uh, just to expand on that quickly. So those that are listening to this that are vegetarian, what because I know that there are sort of uh, different supplements you can get. This sublingual yeah. B twelve. What's the one that you recommend? I quite often recommend a sublingual or a spray because you just get it absorbed really, really fast into your body. And you know, one of the problems with being a vegetarian is that the secretions in your stomach actually change, and your ability to actually release intrinsic factor, which is the chemical that absorbs B12, might not be as good as somebody that was actually eating meat in their diet. So even that would apply to supplements as well. So sublingual or mouth sprays is probably what I would go for there. Actually, I had a question for you because I was sat next to my, my good friend, Helen. She's a, she's a very, very successful photographer. She's always traveling around the world. She's gone vegetarian recently. Yeah. And we were sat next to each other at a wedding the other day. And she said to me, um, since I got vegetarian, she was like, I don't even like meat anymore. She was like, you know, the, the idea of eating meat or if I was to eat it, it just doesn't make me feel well. And I wondered whether, you know, we know that stomach acid is so vital for breaking meat down. Is when people become vegetarian, do they naturally start to have a lower stomach acid because they're not needing it to? to yeah, bring? they do. So, so yeah. when vegetarians say, oh, I don't even like meat anymore, that could well be because their stomach acid is just starting to reduce. Yeah, it's mostly that's the reason instantly spring to mind for me is like, well, probably your stomach acid has dropped because you're not eating meat. So your body will it will adapt. Your body is amazing at adapting to any circumstance. So if you're not feeding it um, proteins like you would get in meat, then it will just adapt to that and it'll think right well i don't need to release as much hydrochloric acid into your stomach then so it but then it does have that long-term impact of then it if you wanted to restart eating meat it would be difficult at first or you might need to supplement the with something like betaine hcl in order to get it all kick-started again uh, so moving into the news this week uh, we're going to talk about uh, the tali diet so um this is coming to the headlines because it's uh it's um interesting about what the effect the Tali diet has on the microbiome. That's what the scientists have been looking into. But let's just start with what is the Tali diet? So it's looking at the way that um, traditional Indians would eat. So it's um, it's like a platter of different components of the dish. So you might have like a, a bowl of rice and then a bowl of something that's based on lentils and then other sort of pulses. Um, it's using lots of different spices and lots of different colours and lots of vegetables as well. So the idea of it being, um, you know, lots of little dishes to make up the meal is you're getting a huge diversity of nutrients in there, lots of different colours. So we talk about phytochemicals being the plant pigments. So phyto means plant. Um, phytochemicals are bioactive, which means they have these actions in the human body when you consume them. And the what gives what makes an aubergine purple will give you a purple pigment that has a specific action on gut bacteria. What makes a pepper yellow will give you another one. And, you know, um, it's rich in certain nutrients as well. So the Tali diet is really it's a diverse diet. So that is exactly what I would I would support that style of eating. You don't have to be living in India to have that style of eating. But having a really colourful plate is amazing 
because you're getting all that broad spectrum of phytonutrients. And the interesting thing about the Thali diet is Indian food has a really, one of the main spices that they use is turmeric. Yeah. And uh, turmeric is, it's funny actually, because uh, uh, turmeric, and if I'm right in saying, is actually uh, a derivative of the ginger. It's a root, Yeah, a similar it? family, I think. Yeah. 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 And um, so let's talk about just quickly, like the benefits of having turmeric in your diet. So on the gut bacteria, it actually has quite a, it's mild, but it has quite an antimicrobial effect. So it can have an impact on the small intestinal bowel overgrowth, but it's also anti-inflammatory as well. So any mild inflammatory problems that you wouldn't be necessarily aware of by symptoms, they can start impairing the mucus barrier that you've got on your gut. So if you have turmeric, it actually it actually reduces that level of sort of insidious inflammation that can then help the mucus barrier build up to a really healthy level again. So, you know, it's got probably two main mechanisms of action just on the gut itself. But systemically, turmeric is really, there's so many studies now on turmeric for being quite anti-inflammatory and anti-carcinogenic. Do you get the same benefits of turmeric as far as raw, fresh turmeric? Mm. Does Do you get the same benefits from, you know, we have it in the, in the, in the spice jar and you put it into your meals? Yeah, so honestly there's a lot of turmeric on the market because you know the world has gone nuts over turmeric and it is amazing it is really really good and it's been used for so many years that it's got so much traditional use um, data on it as well but honestly the best way to take turmeric is with fat so if you're having it in um with the way it would be traditionally used with like the fats within the curry dish or whatever that absorbs the turmeric into your system but, but without it's okay fat, if it's a powder it's yeah no it's absolutely fine to add turmeric powder in as long as there's fat in there so you have fat at the same time or you just take a, a bit of coconut oil with it or something to absorb it into the system if you were to have butter in the dish that would also that would be, be fine yeah. that would be absolutely fine but when what happens if it doesn't get absorbed into the body it has an anti-inflammatory effect on the colon so sometimes certain supplements that wouldn't actually be absorbed really very much at all into the body can be amazing for colitis say because they actually would have normally have got absorbed somewhere in the small intestine but they make it all the way through to the colon and they have a local anti-inflammatory effect there. So one really easy hack that that we do at home is with buckwheat bed, bread and turmeric. Mm. So when we were talking earlier about how do you not have the same carb every single day, generally in the evenings, there's no bread around. Yeah. That might be like a slice of sourdough in the morning or whatever, or maybe with lunch. But in the evenings, um, I am not a good cook. Like that is not my skill. So I try and find really easy, quick ways to do stuff. And uh, buckwheat is an amazing source of... Um, carbohydrates to make bread out of because firstly it's not a grain um i don't really even know what buckwheat is it's a we, seed yeah it's like <laughs> yeah. Such a, it's such a strange thing because it yeah. comes out like flour it's a, it comes yeah. out like a white flour into the bowl yeah um but when we're doing stuff like um you know we're talking here about the the the, the news around the tali diet and what the scientists have said they've looked at this and not only does it increase diversity yeah but the diversity to, of people on the tali diet is higher mm. but that in itself has anti-inflammatory you know that can have a knock-on effect for yeah. reduced uh, in certain diseases yeah like diabetes or colon cancer yeah different ones like that so what you know and the whole idea around the sort of gutology project is yeah 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 this is all good and well but how do you actually sort of do that in your diet and i found one really easy way is you, you get that buckwheat, you, you bang it in a bowl, you get a tiny bit of hot water and some salt, and I put turmeric, just bang it into the flour, and you mix it together, and I just, with my hands, put them out into like a really thin flatbread, mm. bang them in the oven for 10 minutes, yeah. and you can scoop up your dinner with that. It tastes great with a bit yeah. of salt and butter on top, Perfect. a bit of fat to go with the turmeric. Yeah. But it's an easy hack, and it's the same thing with 
you know, this can be overwhelming when you first start thinking about it. But take the Tali diet, for example. You know, you go into you know, a good supermarket, you can get these amazing curry kits now, which are just the, the spices. There's mm. a really, really good one called... Um, Oh, it will come to me in a second. But basically, it's a, it's dry spices with a bit of sauce with it. And it's mm. all natural ingredients. And mm. most supermarkets have these now. Mm. So you get your really high quality chicken yeah. that you've spent a little bit of extra money on. And even if it's just one chicken breast in there, that's going to go between two of you. And then this tiley idea of what veg have you got that you can just bang in out of the fridge? Because curries are pretty forgiving. Mm. For a bad chef like me, they are. you can just get so <laughs> yeah. much stuff in there yeah. and it still tastes good. And a bit of buckwheat on the side and you serve it with a bit of brown rice. Yeah. It tastes amazing. And suddenly you fed your microbiome. You've got some anti-inflammatory foods in there. It's super colourful. Yeah. And you don't feel like you're being punished. But you know, the thing is as well, a lot of people think to eat healthily is to punish yourself. I'm really glad you use that word because it's just brought this to the front of my mind. But flavour gives you phytonutrients, things like the herbs and the spices and the different mix of flavours that is so tasty. That is what gives gives you the diversity. It's the flavour that actually has the diversity. And so the news behind the Tali diet is, look, scientists have now confirmed and said, look, this is incredible for the microbiome. But what they're actually saying is it's really tasty food. It's got loads of different colours in it. So people are eating it and mm. that is then having an anti-inflammatory effect and increasing diversity. And also what I love about it is it's got no really strict rules attached. It's just whatever you have, lots of colours, lots of different things, put it in. It might be wheat, it might be a wheat flatbread, it might be rice. It doesn't matter. Just the principle is the same. It's just lots of diversity. OK, before we wrap up this week's episode, one thing I wanted to talk about, and we, we kind of touched on this slightly earlier on, was the idea that There are two types of people that are listening to this. There are people that just want to optimize their gut and they're interested. You know, they actually, their digestion is okay, but they're wary of it and they want to keep on top of it and they want to optimize what they're doing. They want their, they want their digestive health to be on form because they know that has an impact on their mental health. They want to have good energy. They want to get rid of fatigue, all of those sorts of things. But then there's a large proportion of the audience that have really poor gut health and have started to realise that actually bloating, gas, indigestion is not normal listening to this, Mm. you know. That six-week recovery plan is online and you can download. It's amazing what our team have done to create this this guide that you can go through. It's written by Julia and it looks beautiful and you can remove a load of foods out of your diet to see if that makes you feel better and it will talk you through all the way through to start to reintroduce foods. Yeah, yeah. When I wrote the six-week plan, I was really thinking in mind of what I've done um, because all of my experience so far has been in a clinic environment where I've been really individualising things. So when I put together the six-week plan, it was kind of based on all the experience of, you know, how people respond to certain things. And it's, I would say, it's it's the, the best way to start making some kind of assessment on how things could be if you started making alterations. But I would just really want to stress that it's it's the beginning of the journey. And if you've got chronic gut problems, the six week plan won't fix it, but it's um, it's the start to fix it. And you have to make that, you have to do that. You have to start at the beginning and get the foundations worked out. But the information that the six week plan will generate for you is really valuable. And then what do you do next going forward? And I think that the other thing that I wanted to say is, you know, once you've gone through that, you can 
start to reintroduce the foods that you love it's just about everything in moderation and isn't that the art of life yeah definitely the light and shade of it all Mm. and when it comes down to you know a lot of people will be approaching this and go yeah god i know this and actually i can almost bring myself to eat all the rainbow foods but god i love chocolate and god i love puddings and let's be honest like the connection with food goes far deeper than just what you like and what you don't like so many of us pile our emotional problems into our love of food and when we're having a hard time we eat bad stuff it makes us feel better and i think that it's a finding that path of least resistance doesn't have to be through punishing yourself you know be creative if you fucking love ice cream or you love brownies then just be smart because there are ways that you can make that food that aren't bad for you. Yeah, coconut milk, banana, pineapple, whiz it up, freeze it. And then you have what I would call ice cream. That's what my kids think ice cream is. <laughs> Don't think, well, they have been exposed to the real ice cream. But even <laughs> you so... You say that with such sadness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's so many tricks you can do to have the treats that you love. You just have them in a different, healthier way. Yeah, how can you get raw cacao? How can you yeah. get avocado? How can you get manuka honey? Yeah. And you could certainly be eating a brownie that isn't just like not bad for you it's full of stuff that is genuinely good for you Mm. and you can start to hack your way into having a really healthy diet that genuinely tastes great and i i think that is the that is the big thing that this doesn't have to be punishment you know we live in a world of these fat busting clubs where you've got someone at the front that's going Sharon, it's a sin. Shame on you. Get on the scale. Like, you do know I me, mean? and they they stand you up in front of everyone, and like everyone, Sharon, she's put on five calories. Everyone say sinner, sin, 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 and you, they get on these liquid shakes, and they start counting calories, and it's fucking bullshit. The lot of it, you can do it in a way that is not punishment, and I feel so strongly about this. I feel really strongly about it too, and I think it's the, the one thing that I work really, really hard to sort out with my clients is that yes we've got to make some really really strict dietary changes for a short period of time but I want them to always have a really good relationship with food so what I want them to gain from it is not that they're deprived or not that they're punished but actually they're now they've now got the power and food is so powerful um, and having a good relationship with how you can use food to your advantage or disadvantage is a really powerful thing and I don't believe in food as sins and you know it's all about knowing what is right for you and what is good for you but always having a really good appetite and really enjoying your food no matter what stage of the process you're at so what we want you to do is as we wrap up season one is to say a couple of things go to gutology.co.uk and subscribe to our newsletter because what we're going to do is we're going to bring you more we're going to take you on that journey with us and if you're looking to connect with a nutritionist you can trust if you're looking for more if you're looking for the right supplements if you've got questions then the website is the place you can do that if you're listening to this podcast now click subscribe because what that means is when we come back to you with season two you can join us on that journey as well it's really simple to do it and you can also support the project on patreon we are going to be doing even at the end of this series monthly Google Hangouts where you can actually chat with me and Julia. You're not going to be asking me questions. You'll be asking Julia questions. Uh, But we can continue that conversation and you can start to interact with us. We've already had so many people asking questions and that's really easy to do. Just go to patreon.com forward slash gutology and you can get involved in our monthly Google Hangout on there. And we're not going anywhere. The content is going to keep coming thick and fast. You can join us on YouTube, on Instagram, on Twitter. And most importantly, 
share this with your friends. If you know somebody that you think could benefit from this, you know, maybe it could change somebody's life like it did for me. Go online, share that message. And thanks for being a part of season one. Thanks for tuning in and staying with us. It's been amazing. Yeah, it's been brilliant. And we'll see you next time. Bye bye. (laughs) 